0: Namo Tassa Bagoato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namo Tassa Bagoato Sama Samputasa Namo Tassa sama sam Budang sah Bus sar na ka Sangang sar na charm Du diMP buds sar na ka Tetam pi sangham saranam gacchami Tetam pi buddham saranam gacchami Tetam pi dhammam gacchami Tetam pi sangham gacchami Ve Ramani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Adinadana dana. Ramani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Aparamacharya Ve Musavada- we Ramani Sikha Padam Samadhi Ami Sura Marya We Ramani Sikha a pa important teachings of the Buddha is his teaching on the nature of mind in one sutta he says this mind monks is luminous but it is clouded by visiting defilements so what does this mean in our experience our mind is luminous but it's clouded by visiting defilements when we hear a sound It's very simple. There's simple knowing. There's just the knowing of the sound, bare consciousness. Or we feel a breath, or we feel a sensation. In the simplicity of just knowing, there's no real problem. So The nature of the mind, of consciousness, of what we could call the knowing faculty in and of itself, is empty, it's pure, it's clear, it's open. It was described very well by a mathematician in a book about the history of the number zero. His name is Robert Kaplan. (coughs) He said, when you look at zero, you see nothing. But when you look through it, you can see the world. When I read that, it was very much like the understanding of the open, empty nature of the mind. Look for it, and you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. So the question arises, both for people staying on retreat, and for those of you who will be leaving back into the world, what obscures this simple natural clarity? Why don't we live from this place of ease? Why don't we live in this place of peace? When we look carefully at our experience, we see that what clouds this natural, say luminous or knowing clarity, what creates suffering in our lives and in the world are what could be called the afflictive emotions. This is one translation of the Pali word kalesa, which which is sometimes translated as defilement. But I like afflictive emotion as a translation because it so points in English to the fact that, yes, these are mind states that when not understood cause us suffering anger fear jealousy envy pride ill will frustration depression delusion and this is a long list of these states by now you must have realized that it's quite natural for these states to arise I mean, if they didn't, you really wouldn't have to be here. (laughs) The challenge for us is when they do arise, how can we relate to them in a skillful way? The mind, monks, is luminous. It is clouded by visiting defilements. The mind is luminous. It is freed from visiting defilements. The question tonight is, how can it be freed? The first and fundamental step in working with these afflictive emotions and mind states is one that has been talked about a lot over these last weeks. Namely, the recognition and the acknowledgement that they have arisen. If we don't acknowledge, if we don't recognize the fact that they've arisen, it is impossible to work with them. In a skillful way, it is impossible to free the mind from the affliction. Now there's a wide range among us regarding our ability to recognize emotions as they arise. For some, it's very difficult. For some people, it is very difficult to actually know what it is that they're feeling. and we might be going on our merry way in life not even knowing that there are different emotions which are driving us to action or driving us to distra- distraction other people may be quite attuned to the emotions and mind states that are arising but might still be in the habit of getting lost in them, of being carried away, of being swept away, and of in the flood tide of these feelings. So there are different ways we can train ourselves to connect more mindfully with the emotions in general, and with the afflictive emotions specifically. A way that, again, has been mentioned often, and it's kind of a reminder to you we can connect with the physical sensations that arise that can become the signal for us the tightness the contraction the agitation the tension sometimes these sensations are residues from long past emotions so they don't necessarily mean every time we feel tension that there's suppressed rage Because often, the body, we're experiencing the residue from many of our past actions and feelings, just the accumulated tensions of our lives. But when we're feeling these strong sensations, they can provide a clue to what it is we're actually feeling in the present. So there's no need to interpret them automatically. Oh, this sensation means that. But rather, when they're strong, when there's that feeling of agitation or contraction in the heart, let that be a signal simply to look, to investigate. Is there some feeling that's going on? Is an emotion present? We can also notice just those times when we're feeling out of sorts, you know, we're just going along and we're not feeling happy, we're feeling ill at ease. Or maybe there's a lot of obsessive thoughts going on. All of these are signals, okay, what is the mindset? What is the emotion that's underlying them? It might be unacknowledged worry. It might be unacknowledged anxiety or fear. When we're feeling ill at ease, and we don't know what's there yet, but just that feeling of being ill at ease, that's a time to take a look. About 15 years ago, 14 years ago, just when I moved in to the house next door that uh, Sharon and I share, I moved in, and I started with a month-long retreat. Now, I had been living in the center for about thirteen or fourteen years, and it was really when I turned forty that I, I need some space. <laughs> I need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and just through some amazing generosity of some people, who basically offered this amazing gift, so I was thrilled. I was, you know, just to have a little private space. So I move into the house and um, decide to start with a month-long retreat. So I start sitting, and I'm sitting and walking, sitting and walking, and I'm just feeling more and more uncomfortable about the house. And I have starting these obsessive thoughts in my mind. I shouldn't be living in such a nice house. This isn't appropriate for Dharma teachers. I should move out. I'm going to give it to the staff. I'll live in a house <laughs> hot in the woods. It's kind of just It was going on, and I was really tormenting myself a lot. Uh, it was not fun. But I didn't really know what was going on. I i just knew that I was not feeling very happy. So at a certain point, point, this was going on for days, at a certain point, I just stopped and I said, what is going on here? What am I feeling? And I realized... I was feeling embarrassed. That was the feeling. I was kind of embarrassed to live in a nice place. As soon as I saw it, as soon as I recognized it, oh, embarrassment. It was a lot easier to feel the embarrassment than to move out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> And okay, this is just this feeling, that's all it is. But until I recognized it, it was really driving me and causing a lot of suffering. So this recognition is just a really important piece. And sometimes we can take that sense of being ill at ease, even when we don't quite know, let that be the signal. Okay, take a look. You know, and as we do that, we might find that there are, for each of us, you know, three or four or five emotions which tend to be the ones, the afflictive emotions that come most frequently. And if we can see them and name them and recognize them, then they have less power. Pay attention. All of these are ways of getting more connected with what we're feeling. Pay attention when you find yourself in the middle of some action, and it could be an action of the body, it could be an action of speech, it could be an action of mind, that doesn't quite feel right. You know, it's that sense when you're doing something and you're kind of half looking over your shoulder to see if anybody's noticing. It's just, whenever there's that feeling, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. That would be a great time to just stop for a moment, check in with what's the emotion that's driving it. Again, many years ago, and this is a story I've I haven't told in a while, but <laughs> I've told many times in the past. Uh, I was on retreat here, you know, and doing a self retreat. Um, You know, at lunch sometimes the cooks put out signs, moderation, please. Well, I was going through the line one day and there was some dish that I really liked. It was kind of sesame spinach. (laughs) I know they're still making it these days. But I'm going through the line and I see that sign. And kind of the first thought in my mind, which I hardly noticed, kind of just in the background, I wonder how much I can take and it still be moderate. (laughs) (laughs) And so I definitely took, you know, more than was needed, more than was appropriate. And all the time, it didn't, you know, I knew that it wasn't quite right, but I just did it. And then about three minutes afterwards, you know, the feeling of guilt came up so strongly and you know the whole lunch I was just looking back to see if everybody else had gotten enough it was a very unpeaceful lunch but if I had paid attention right in the moment where you know this I don't feel really comfortable here I might have had a better chance of actually noticing the greed it was just greed in the mind it was desire in the mind that was driving the action but because I overrode the feeling of discomfort and pushed the awareness to the side, so then we act on it. Sometimes we don't recognize what we're feeling because we're not open to the full range of emotions that might be present. Because, as you know, often they come in clusters. And we may be aware of the most obvious one, the one that's on the surface, and be missing the ones that are underneath. For example, underneath the feeling of anger, there might also be feelings of hurt. There might be feelings of fear. There might be feelings of self-righteousness. There might be feelings of resentment. It's worth looking a little more deeply and underneath at those times when we feel caught, when we feel stuck. In other words, if we're aware of the anger and we're mindful of it and we're noting it, but there's not that feeling of really being stuck in it, you know, we're really resting in the awareness of it and we see it come and change and transform, then it's no problem. There's no real need to look further. But when we're caught in some way, when we're hooked by it, this can be one skillful investigation. Is there something underneath that's feeding it? Sometimes we don't recognize feelings because we misperceive them. We take them to be one thing but it's really something else. And again, I had a strong experience of this in my practice on one retreat, where I was sitting and I was feeling just this emotion, and I was noting sad, 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 sad. But it was just going on for so long and I felt felt caught in it. After some time, and it was quite a while, Again, I just what is happening here? You know, why am I caught? What is really going on? And when I looked more carefully, I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. Now they're close. You know, in kind of the emotional range, they're not that far apart. But they are quite different. Unhappiness is a different feeling than sadness. And as soon as I could see that, it was like my mind could align with what was actually there and in that alignment and acceptance I could let it go as long as I was misaligned I couldn't actually become accepting of it because I was not seeing it accurately I want to emphasize that with all of these suggestions there are really things to do at those times when we're caught by something in the normal course of the mindfulness of our emotions, the simple awareness, oh yes, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, that's fine. We don't need to investigate further. But at certain times, this, this further looking can be very helpful and very freeing. A question that I've used a lot At those times of feeling stuck emotionally, is to simply settle back and ask myself the question okay, what's happening here? You know, I might be looking, looking so intently, you know, and trying to dig deep. And actually, the move that we need to do is to let go of that intense digging and settle back and simply open up with that question, okay, what's happening? So we get into a more receptive, a more intuitive mode. It's as if we let the response come to us instead of trying to figure it out. You know, and it might be even something as simple. We settle back, we ask the question, okay, what's happening here? Maybe the response is confusion. Maybe that's what's happening you know, or chaos, or dullness. The clear recognition of what's happening is the basis for the next essential step in this process of freeing the mind. And that is the quality of acceptance. We need to recognize what's there, but then we have to come to that place where we can accept the experience of this particular emotion. An acceptance of afflictive emotions, and we have to be a little careful here because English has so many, these words have so many connotations. Acceptance here does not mean justifying them. It doesn't mean wallowing in them. Doesn't certainly doesn't mean judging them. It's simply the full acknowledgement, yes, this emotion, this afflictive mind state is present. Acceptance here really is another word for mindfulness. It helps us to not be lost and also to not hold on. We recognize what's there, we accept it. An indication that we're not accepting, an indication that in some way we're not being mindful in this way, is a sense of struggle. Struggle, the feeling of struggle, is a great feedback. So when you're sitting or you're walking or out in the world, and we're feeling that internal struggle, what does that mean? It means something is going on that we're not accepting because if we were accepting, we wouldn't be struggling. So rather than see it as a problem and tie ourselves further into knots around it, we can really use it as a feedback. It becomes like a wake-up call. There's so many, of course, examples of this. One of the times I was practicing at the monastery in Burma, as probably different people have mentioned, yeah, it's very at least the center of the monastery I was at. it was, it was incredibly noisy. I mean it's just loudspeakers all around. They were doing a lot of construction and just you know, they were banging metal on metal, straightening out these steel, steel rebars. You don't know how good you have it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and so you make all of this effort, you know, go halfway around the world and just sitting in the midst of this cacophony of noise and sound. And so at times my mind would just get filled with this annoyance and anger and frustration and resentment about it all. Again, at a certain point, it took a while to get there. But at a certain point, I saw I was just in this state of struggle with this situation, with this experience. I was definitely not accepting it. So I just stopped. What is going on? What's the feeling? What's the mind state here? And I saw that it was complaining mind. That's all. My mind was just complaining. And it was amazing. As soon as I saw it and as soon as I could note it, as soon as I could accept it, It wasn't a problem. Then there was just sound, and then the complaining mind would come, and I would note it, and now it would come and go. The acceptance alleviates the struggle. In order to accept, we need to recognize. We need to see what is it that's actually there. Sometimes we don't recognize and accept emotion Because they're too painful, they're too uncomfortable, and we don't like feeling them. Just like we don't particularly like to feel the pain in the knee or the back. It takes some practice to learn, even when it's painful, even when it's unpleasant. Okay, this is okay, I can feel it. Or maybe the emotions don't fit our idea of being a good yogi, good yogis don't feel this. Good yogis don't feel rage or pride you know, or jealousy. So we have this model and then because of a certain model we may have about meditation and meditators, like we don't open to it, we don't recognize it But this denial of what's actually present, free of any model we might have of what should be present, if we're in denial in this way of the emotions that we're feeling, it leads to tremendous self-delusion. Oh, I never get angry. I'm a yogi. (laughs) Or whatever it may be. As long as we're unwilling to feel what we feel, then we're always living defensively. We're living in fear. We're trying to protect ourselves from these feelings. Sometimes, though, we need to proceed very slowly. Sometimes feelings can be very intense, particularly when there's been traumatic experience in the past. That's traumatic, not dramatic. You know, it kind of intense feelings can come up, especially in meditation practice, sometimes overwhelming. It's like too much, too fast. So at that time, we really need to learn, and this, this is a great skill itself in meditation. We, we need to learn how to modulate the intensity to kind of back off a little bit, you know, slow it down, regain some balance, and then just with these very intense emotions, Okay, we we play at the edges a little bit. And we undertake this process very tenderly, very gently. Okay, so from this foundation of recognition first, and then acceptance, we can then interject the whole domain of wisdom into the realm of our emotions. We can begin to apply what in recent years has been very aptly called emotional intelligence. It's really a good phrase. Now, from the Buddhist perspective, emotional intelligence, in part, has to do with our ability to discern what are skillful emotions and what are unskillful which ones are wholesome, which ones are afflictive. And the distinguishing quality is very simple. It's not some abstract metaphysics. The Buddha talked of how the unskillful emotions, the afflictive emotions, the kalesis, are those mind states, those feelings that bring suffering, bring suffering to ourselves, bring suffering to others, The skillful ones, the wholesome ones, are ones that bring happiness, bring peace. This wise discernment of skillful and unskillful is basic to the Buddhist teachings. But in our culture and the way we've been conditioned, this is also a very delicate matter. Because for many people, it's an extremely easy step from saying an emotion, a particular mind state like pride or greed or anger. It's an easy step from saying that's unskillful to the feeling that I'm a bad person for having it. We've been conditioned a lot in our culture by this kind of self-judgment or that somehow it's bad even that the feeling is arising. What does this pattern do when we're caught in this self-judgment around certain emotions or judgment of the emotion rather than simple discernment? It just leads to less accept to less acceptance, to more self judgment, and we so stay in this cycle of more and more afflictive emotions. It's not a helpful way of being with it. It's important to discern which emotions are skillful, which emotions are unskillful, not in order to judge ourselves or to be reactive to the states themselves, But simply, in order to see which states should be cultivated and strengthened, which states should be let go of, which should be abandoned. It's pretty simple. What leads to happiness? What leads to suffering? This is the the central element. Of the Buddhist teaching. Now sometimes we can be mindful of the emotion, and I'll talk a little bit later about this. but we really can just see the emptiness of it and let go in that way. Sometimes we can't see it the emptiness so clearly. The discernment between skillful and unskillful can help us make other choices as well. You know, at one point, I was retreat is great for dharma examples, <laughs> you know, because you're just sitting watching your mind all this time. At one point, I was on retreat, and I was just lost in thoughts about this person and filled with a lot of uh, ill will and anger and just about things that had happened. And at a certain point I realized they don't even know I'm feeling this. I'm the one who's suffering. You know, they're fine. And I realized I could take my little inner remote and change the channel. That this, cho- this was basically a choice I was making. I was, I was making the choice to be on the anger channel. So I just pressed the meta, the meta button. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, I, I can do metta as well as do, do anger. We actually have this ability, and this is, this is the great gift of meditation practice, to see that we don't have to be victims of our minds. There are so many different skillful means, it's not just one, so many different skillful means we can use once we make the discernment This is a skillful state, this is an unskillful state. If we don't practice this kind of emotional intelligence, this discernment, it's very easy to just stay locked in to patterns of suffering throughout our lives. Now, And sometimes we can do this in the moment, we can really see through it sometimes it's a process it's not always that it's an immediate depending on the particular mind state and our own skill so we have to realize yes sometimes it can be a quick change sometimes it's a gradual one sometimes it's difficult to experience this discernment of skillful and unskillful because the unskillful states can be so delicious. You know, they can be very, very seductive. And we, in a certain way, enjoy them. Or we justify them to ourselves. The Buddha spoke very directly to this. He said, anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. You know, because you know, we just like kind of even though on a deeper level it's suffering. One of my very favorite stories. I don't know if I read this here, but if I did, you'll hear it again. (laughs) I don't know about the writer uh, Anne Lamott. She said, she, she was describing how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers. She's a writer, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. She said, it can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to them. She says, for say, her head to blow up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they are very seductive. <laughs> but still on a more discerning level we see that they they simply cause us suffering. It's this it's this discernment, this distinction between skillful and unskillful mind states which is so emphasized in the Buddhist teachings, which, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is really what adds the moral dimension to psychology. It's not just the map of what's happening, but we really see what's helpful to us and what's harmful to us. This is particularly important Because these different mind states that arise commonly in our experience are not only arising in our own minds. They are also what motivates our actions. And when we look about in the world, why is there so much avoidable suffering? You know, the violence, or hunger, or war, or injustice. I mean, there's plenty of suffering that's inevitable, just taking birth and having a body. But there's so much in the world that is avoidable. Why is it so overwhelming? Because it's these afflictive emotions, these calaces of the mind, which are playing themselves out. It's greed playing itself out, and fear playing itself out, and hatred playing itself out. So for our own happiness and also for the peace and well-being of the world, it's really essential that we begin to see, to recognize, to accept, to discern what it is that's going on in our own minds. The Dalai Lama emphasized this point a lot in a very pointed teaching he said that actions, the actions we do, should not be measured by their success or failure, but rather by the motivation behind them. You know, and our whole society measures actions by their success or failure, and we're very much in the habit of doing that. And it's very rarely that we stop and evaluate the success failure of our action by looking at the quality of the motivation behind it. And yet that's what is really important. So we talked about recognition, we talked about acceptance, talked about this wise discernment between what is skillful and what is unskillful, those mind states and emotions that bring suffering, those that bring peace, (laughs) the last step in working with afflictive emotions is the most difficult and the most liberating. And that is learning to be open to them, to feel them and at the same time not to be identified with them. It's this understanding that transforms whatever emotion may be arising into wisdom learning not to be identified with the emotions or mind states that are arising. So what does identification with them mean? We all know experientially, you know, it's that sense of feeling of being lost in it, of being swept away, of being caught up in it, taking them to be self. This feeling is me. This is who I am. Well, just notice the difference that i'm sure you have at different times this is a very helpful practice notice the difference between the sense i'm sad i'm angry i'm happy from sadness is present happiness is present fear is present or sadness is being known fear is being known anger is being known very different relationship to them in one, we are identified with it, taking them to be self. And in the other, we see them as simply another arising phenomena. This distinction, which we can practice, and it's not easy because we get caught up and identified so easily. Emotions are very often what we most personalize, even more than thoughts, more than body sensations. It's so easy to be in that feeling, I'm really feeling angry, or "I'm, I'm delighted, I'm happy. But the doorway to a freer place of mind is to see that the I and the mind is extra. That's not in the experience itself. That's something we're adding to it. As we notice this, even occasionally, we really start to feel that sense of contraction and limitation when we are caught up. It's like our whole world closes in, our whole world collapses into the identification with that feeling. We have a much greater sense of ease, a much greater sense of spaciousness when we see, and again, this this is our practice, when we see that emotions, like everything else, are arising out of conditions. They're like clouds forming in the sky. The conditions come together and there's a cloud formation. The conditions change, the cloud disperses. That's exactly how emotions arise. And through practice, we can begin even to get some glimpses of this. When we understand their conditioned nature, even though we feel them, we don't take them quite so seriously. No, they don't overpower us quite so much. So, how can we explore this conditioned nature of emotion? So, we're really seeing it, so it's not theoretical, but in the moment of emotion arising, we're we're seeing that it's arising out of conditions. Well, there are a couple of ways. One is, and this can be a fascinating sort of experiment, notice the relationship of thought to emotion, and sometimes I'm just amazed, can be going along quite happily. A certain thought will come into the mind, and just the thought can produce a feeling of whatever, of anxiety, of fear, of greed, of wanting, of desire. The thought conditions the emotion. And just to see that, and, and you wonder, how does that happen, this pipsqueak of a thought? <laughs> and all of a sudden, the whole mind-body is filled with, with this energy. I don't know, I'm just kind of fascinated, even on the kind of the biochemical level. You know, what is it that's going on? But the more we see, oh yeah, this, is, this was just a conditioned reaction, You know, so many different elements. So then we're not quite so caught up in the emotion. We just say, yeah, this was was a cause and effect relationship. And we can see it the other way too. We can see how emotions condition thoughts. You know, how they just loop around each other. We can also understand the conditionality of emotions when we notice that what we feel very often depends on our level of understanding. You know, what makes one person really unhappy, the very same thing could leave another person quite at ease. You know, there's the story of uh, Ryokan, 18th century zen hermit poet, recluse, player with children, and then his wonderful wonderful life and wonderful life story. It said that he was living very poorly, had almost nothing, and living just in a little hut in the woods, up in the mountains, came home one day, came back, and even the few possessions he had had been stolen. You know, and so... Sat down and wrote a little poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Now just imagine going home, your house has been cleared out, nothing left. Oh, the moon at the window. <laughs> the thief left it. I don't think so. <laughs> it just depending on our level of understanding that will condition what we feel. Sometimes we can play with working with these emotions and learning to not identify with them by engaging our inner Dharma coach now we all have we all have this coach inside. A couple of years ago I was on retreat and there was an incident happened. When I'm basically a greedy type rather than a aversive type. But on this particular retreat something happened and psh, <laughs> there was a there was a explosion of anger in my mind. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I hadn't been so angry in many, many, many years. It was it was stunning. <laughs> so I was. I mean, this and this went on for days because the situation was ongoing, <laughs> and so just alternating between kind of being caught in it, but then really working with it. I mean, it, was, it was interesting to me just to see how my mind could get caught and then. How it could be free. And I just worked in different ways, and each one really helped me. One was the teaching the Dalai Lama says so often, which is easy to acknowledge theoretically, but it's very powerful in the moment. One's enemies teaches one's patience. You know, we should really respect our enemies, even if it's you know just an enemy of the moment. They actually teach us patience. Well, it's very hard to get to that place when we feel justified in our anger. Oh, thank you for teaching me patience. But when we practice that, genuinely practice that, it's a powerful way of unhooking. It really changes our relationship, changes that whole notion of self-justification. Another teaching that helped me a lot at that time comes from one of the uh, Buddhist suttas and it was such a powerful reminder to me where the Buddha was speaking in the context of right speech but not so much about speaking but about how we listen, how we hear I just want to read this to you. Because there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or connected with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Here in bhikkhus you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. Well, in the midst of this storm, coming back to that, I mean, the Buddha is kind of throwing down the gauntlet. (laughs) He's saying, it does not matter how people address us. It may be untrue, it may be with intent to harm, it may be filled with inner hate. You should train yourself thus, our minds will remain unaffected, we shall utter no unskillful words, we shall abide compassion for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. Well, that's a practice. (laughs) (laughs) But I found the words, the teachings so powerful because it reminded me of what the practice was. You know, because it was so easy to get caught up in justifying how I was feeling and getting lost in it, and even as I said earlier, kind of enjoying the intensity of it. I mean, this is what I find so powerful about the Buddhist teachings the radical nature of the truth. You no, know, he's not waffling here. And so it becomes a reference point, not that it'll be easy to do, and maybe you know, it'll, we may do it for a moment in the midst of it all, but it reminds us of where the work actually is. And I think this is a very uh, powerful teaching for us. There was one other little uh, inner coach that I used just a few a few weeks before I had gone on retreat. I had seen kind of this movie. maybe you've seen it, uh, "The Pianist." It was about a very powerful and intense about the Warsaw Ghetto under Nazi times, And, and it's just the suffering was so intense. And that came to mind, calling that to mind, and then looking at my little thing, <laughs> you know, which was, it was nothing, even though it stirred up that intense emotion, and just putting in perspective. You know, we can get so caught up in our own dramas and lose all perspective with the immensity of genuine suffering that's in the world, and that just helped, again, bring my mind back into some kind of balance that, okay, Can I work with this? Let me work with this. So we we can work with our minds. We don't simply have to be swept away on this flood tide of emotion. And the last way that I want to mention this evening in terms of seeing the conditional nature of the afflictive mind states is the Buddha's urging us to reflect on their impermanent nature. It helps keep us from this reactive identification. So This is from one of the suttas also. He said, So indeed, these states, these mind states, not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Regarding these states, abide unattracted, unrepelled, independent, non-attached, free, not identified with the mind free of all barriers. And so it's this teaching which we've heard so often over these weeks. All of these states, all conditioned phenomena, arise, are there, pass away, when we know this not theoretically, but when we're seeing it, not having been, this emotion has come into being, having been, it vanishes. We see this over and over and over again. So slowly we learn, this is not I, this is not self. This practice of working with the afflictive emotions in all of these ways of the recognition, the acceptance, the non-identification, opens the possibility for us of a much deeper happiness in our lives. We can engage with these mindsets and they will arise definitely for all of us, but when we can engage with them, with a quality of interest, with a quality of inquiry. It's as if in those moments, we are engaged with the Four Noble Truths. At that point, it's not theoretical, it's not Buddhist philosophy. There's suffering, we're feeling it. There's the cause of suffering, we're caught in some way. There's the possibility of peace, there's a way to that peace. So our practice is very alive. And this is true both on retreat and very much out in the world. I'd like to close with just a poem by Wendell Berry. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives might be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water And I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That's it for a few moments. Resting in the grace of the world. merit of all our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit